Well, good morning, Stone Creek. How we doing this morning? Yeah, good, good, good. That's what I like to hear. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Sean, and I'm the student pastor here. And I mean, we're super grateful that you guys are here with us this morning. And I, I believe this. I believe that God's got something for each of us this morning um, through this scripture. Uh, and I, I got to be honest, like, I'm pretty biased, but if you are new here, I just want you to know, like, welcome, you found your church home, because there is no church that's better than this. I'm just going to be really real with y'all today, because it's the best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, love, I love our church, and I love so many things about it. And one thing, as a student pastor, one thing I really love about our church is our belief in what we call the now generation. And other churches may refer to it as the next generation. That's just a lie from the enemy. It's not true because they're the leaders not just of tomorrow but of today. And I'm talking about our kids and our student ministry. And, um, and man, wake. Yeah, you can cheer for that. It's amazing. Come on. Listen, God, God's been doing something really special uh, at Wake. And uh, before I even dive in, I just want to kind of give you guys a glimpse into that through a small uh, story of the details. Like sometimes we have these awesome stories of life change and of big baptism nights and of salvation and all of that. But um, I, I also really love the way that God works uh, in, in the little things. And so I want to tell you guys a quick story about that. We actually have um, three guys, three upperclassmen um, in our ministry right now who are really diving into Scripture. Uh, for, the, for the first time uh, in the way that they are. And what's been really cool is these three guys decided, hey, I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading scripture together. And they start a group message and they've been holding each other accountable. And for the last 18 days, they've been reading the Bible every morning at 6.30 in the morning. And they'll text and say, hey, I'm up. You up? Because I'm up. And, and they've, they've been reading the word of God and they've been diving in um, and it's nine chapters a day. So they've been doing that deep plunge. And it's, and it's been really cool to see the way that God in just 18 days has begun to transform transform things in their heart and transform the way that they see things and the way that they see their purpose and the way that they see their calling. And one of these guys um, this past week, he took this to heart and he's like, hey, I'm not just going to allow this to be words on a page, but I'm going to start to live this out through my calling. And he goes up to these other two uh, upperclassmen at his school and he sets up a coffee and tells them about what God's doing here at Stone Creek at Wake. And these two guys came this past Wednesday. They're already really plugged in and they're already wanting to invite people to come join them the movement that's here. And that's what happens. Yeah. That's what happens when we see the word of God and begin to live out the word of God. God begins to move. Right. And that's what I love about our church. Another thing I really love about Stone Creek is man, we are, we are convicted that to read the word of God. We're convicted to dive into scripture and to dive into the Bible because what we believe about this book is that it's not just a book full of words that might be like, a, you know, a, a thing that might make our life a little bit better. No, no, no. This is a book that will transform you if you would allow it to because we believe that these words that are in here, the God-inspired, God-breathed word of God, and that's what the Bible is. And so that's why we've been so passionate about diving into it. And, and I love our, our senior pastor, Stephen. Can we just give it up for Stephen Gibbs real fast? Yeah, Stephen awesome. Um, and Stephen is such a good teacher of the word, right? I've loved this series and over the summer when we went through James because he got up here and, man, he teaches the word with such clarity and with such authority. But that's because the, it's not his words that are life-changing, right? It won't be my words today that are going to be life-changing. It's this word. This is the word that, will, that, that has the power to transform you. And so I'm really excited to dive into the word of God this morning. And we're in, in a, a, a series called Bricklayers. And this is week five of the series. And in this series, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. Everybody say, Nehemiah. Yeah, we're walking step by step through the journey of this book. And, and I love the question that uh, Stephen's been asking every week. And I feel like kind of obligated to ask it too because he's asked it every week and I want to be like him. So I'm going to ask this question to kick off my message. And it's this, what great work 
are you doing? What great work are you doing? Like for me, I've been asking myself this question. One of the great works that I'm very proud of is that I get to disciple so many students who are going to then disciple generations of students to come. And one thing I love doing is walking alongside of our small group leaders at Wake. And I know some small group leaders at Kids and group leaders here at our church. And getting to see that the way that they're discipling people who are going to disciple people. And that is the great work that they are doing in their life. And so I just want to ask the question, what great work are you doing? Through the first four chapters of the book of Nehemiah, he's been tasked to do a great work. And he's begun to do it. Okay, he's been tasked to rebuild this wall around the city of Jerusalem that's been broken down by their enemies. By the enemies of the people of God. And over the last four chapters, Nehemiah has gotten a group of people together to begin to rebuild this wall. Notice I said a group of people. Because Nehemiah wasn't ever tasked to do it alone. Right? It wasn't like God was like, hey, Nehemiah, hey, dude, I need you to go, and I need you to get some supplies. I need you to start grinding, start getting to work, and rebuild that wall. No, 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 that's not what he does. What he does is he says, hey, Nehemiah, I'm going to give you the vision. I'm going to give you the mission. Go get the people of God together and begin to accomplish it. Because there's a, there's a mission for you to do. There's a mission for you to accomplish, and it's time to do it brick by brick. And what we believe, uh, why this series is called Bricklayers is because we believe there's some power behind beginning to lay bricks. There's some power behind all of us coming together and me being like, okay, cool, this is the brick that I can lay. And, and, and then Ryan coming, hey, this is the brick I can lay. And Ben Lawler going, hey, this is the brick that I can lay. And Kennedy Silverman going, hey, this is the brick that I, I can lay. And Jeff McCool going, hey, this is the brick that I can lay. And we can come together and something begins to be built when the church unifies around Mission. See, we believe that brick by brick, this church will be built. We believe that brick by brick, marriages are going to be restored. Right? We, we believe that brick by brick, we're going to see more churches planted in the name of Jesus. We believe that brick by brick, faith is going to become very real and very tangible for every person that walks through the doors of our church. We believe that brick by brick, the kingdom of God is going to be built here on earth as it is in heaven. Now I'm going to summarize how we do it. You ready? I'm going to just spill the beans off the top, okay? This is, how, this is how we build this church. A church that sees a kingdom culture develop. A church that sees 365 salvations in a year. A church that, that sees day by day people come to know Jesus. A church that sees multiplication, five campuses in five years. A church that sees a glimpse of the glory of God every day. A church that sees sacrificial generosity be a heartbeat that we pound to. This is how we do it. We have to be unified. We have to be unified. Unified in mission, unified in vision, and unified in application. Because when we're trying to do our own little things, build our own little walls, we're missing out on the point of what God has called us to do. We have to be unified. But here's, here's the issue with this. And we live in one of the most ununified times in the history of our country. Right? There is disunity everywhere you look. And uh, disunity is a thing that our culture will so easily implement into our lives. Don't believe me? Two words. College football. Right? Like, college football makes you hate some people. Like, let's just be real. Like, I know my mom growing up said, don't use the word hate. Well, I'm going to use it because it's how you feel. Okay? I'm just going to call it what it is. Like, yesterday, like, any, any Georgia fans in the house today? 
Okay, okay. A couple, like you're louder than normal because you finally have something to be proud of being an Atlanta sports fan. That's good. Congratulations. Uh, Clemson fans, any of them? Yeah, that's because they're at home depressed right now, right? But yesterday, Georgia, like, fans, they hated Clemson fans. And today, Clemson fans continue to hate Georgia fans, right? Like, it, it creates something in us. I'm an Oklahoma fan. I hate Texas fans. I'm just going to be honest. I, I do. It's something that the Lord has to work on in my heart. We barely beat Tulane yesterday, so my, my life's a little bit shorter. So that's awesome. I love that. Um, and, but we can all agree, right, as a church, well, the first thing today we can be unified in is this. There is one fan we will always hate. The Alabama fan, right? Am I, am I wrong? Like Ryan Rohan, uh, you need some church for this morning. You need, you need it. Man, college football is just, a, is just a silly example, but it, it creates so much truth because it's just one little thing in the culture that we are live in that just promotes this culture of disunity, right? This promotes this culture of, hey, you versus me. It promotes this culture of, hey, I got my agenda, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and let's just stay apart. But it's so much further than that. There's so many different parts of our culture that become so ununifying. And the problem is, it's not that there's just disunity. It becomes our focus. We live in it so long. We see it so often. We talk about it all the time. And it becomes our focus. We're so focused on whether or not we should wear masks that we're neglecting loving the people behind them. We're so focused on whether or not to get vaccinated that we're taking our eye off the disease of sin. This morning, we're, we're so focused on a political party that we're, we're creating a divide that we weigh, the, in the way we see our spiritual family. Now, this is a newsflash, but not all of us in the room today are Republicans. Not all of us in the room today are Democrats. But can I tell you one thing that we all have in common is that we're called by God to to a mission to build his church. We're all called by God to a mission to to come in and say, hey, no, no, no. I'm going to point people in my life, in my community to the one way, the person of Jesus, the one truth, the word of God, and the one life, what he did for us on the cross. Can we stop allowing ourselves to be blinded by the disunity that political parties can provide and begin to step in unified to build the church? That's my ask for us today. But divisiveness, I mean, divisiveness ruins progress, doesn't it? Divisiveness, it ruins progress, and it has to be addressed. And that's exactly what happens in the first verse of of Nehemiah 5, is this divisiveness that's crept in has begun to be addressed. Check this out, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish, what? Brothers against their Jewish brothers. As Stephen dove into last week, Nehemiah and his people, man, they're experiencing victory, right? Last, last week, we talked about how the wall was beginning to be built. The enemy had nothing on the, the people of God and there was because no, God was surrounding this wall and the people of God came together and began to build something incredible that God called them to build. And this is really good news for us this morning. Can I tell you that the enemy has nothing on the church of Jesus? The enemy has nothing on us and what God's called us to build, the enemy can do nothing about. He's going to try. He's going to try to distract us. But I can tell you that he will never win. And the reason that hundreds of years of persecution and brokenness through that, the church still stands, is because Jesus is the center of it. And he's already defeated the enemy. He's already won the battle. But the, the enemy is still going to try to make us think that it's ongoing, right? He's going to try to make us think that, oh, no, 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 this isn't over. 
but the church still stands. So many different people of so many different backgrounds and, and so many different languages, so many different ethnicities, so many different political beliefs, so many different financial situations. Guess what? The church still stands because the enemy has nothing on it and we can build a church but the gates of hell cannot prevail. This is what we believe as the church. And the enemy is going to try to stop us, but he's already been defeated. And that's the great news this morning. And in chapter 4, man, it ended in victory. It ended in victory, and, and they're beginning to celebrate. The wall's being built. We're doing what God's called us to do. But we look at chapter 5, and there's no mention of the wall. Why is that? Well, what it would indicate is that progress had stopped. Something had happened to make the progress of the call of God halt. And it's because there's this disunity, this friction among the people of God. Notice it's not an outside enemy, but it's the disunity that begins to come between the people of God. What I want you to know this morning is the greatest threat to us seeing the kingdom of God be built in our city, in our lives, is when we allow disunity to creep in. It's the biggest threat. It's not Satan. He's been defeated. It's not brokenness. God can restore it. No, no, no. It's disunity among the church, among our people, among us. But we get so used and caught up in Facebook posts and church gossip and the disunity that our culture begins to bring, it takes our eyes off the wall that God's called us to build in this city, in this place, on this earth. We have lenses that consistently, that we see through that if we aren't careful, are going to create disunity in the church and prevent us from working together to build the wall that he's called us to build. So when we fight with each other, we halt the progress of what God's called us to do, and we take our eyes off the mission. We take our eyes off the mission. See, Scripture says that the goal of the enemy, the goal of our enemy is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. To kill, to steal, and to destroy. He doesn't want us to ever believe that a life of freedom and of unity is actually possible. See, he looks at you, and he wants you to start to believe some lies. He wants you to believe that you're, too, you're, not, you're not significant enough to make a difference in this church, so why try? Uh, you're too young. Like, students, you're too young. You can't make a difference. That's what he wants you to believe. He, he, he wants to look at you and say, no, 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 you're too broken. Remember your past? You remember that sin? Nope, you, that, that's going to hold, hold over your head. You can't, you can't be a part of this. You're not called to build the wall. But it's these lies that come in the way and take our eyes off the focus of the wall that God's called us to build and put our focus on something that's not true. But God has called us to build a wall. And we can't let anything take our eyes off the vision or get in the way. And the scripture continues in verse 2 through 5. It says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields. Don't miss this, miss this part. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as of their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. That's wild. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have other field, our fields and our vineyards. 
Two things I think that are so tangible and apply so much to us today. Two things from this scripture, from these four verses that I think if we could believe, if we could capture, would be monumental to how we see Jesus and how we see the kingdom of God. See, people begin to talking to Nehemiah saying, hey, we're mortgaging our fields, we're mortgaging our vineyards, and we're mortgaging our houses in order to get grain. And what that means is they're saying, hey, what I'm doing is I'm putting my vineyard up for grabs. I'm putting my house up for grabs and because there's something that I need, this grain, I need it. So I'm going to put it up out there because I'm desperate. I need food. I'm going to put all of my possessions here in order to get something in return. But then they go further. And it gets more intense because they said that they're forcing their sons and daughters into slavery in order to get something back. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that concept. But they're so desperate that they see it as the only option. Ah, I gotta put my son, my daughter's already enslaved because they have something that I need. They have something that will fill me up. They have something that I long for. But they do all of this out of this feeling of desperation. See, to mortgage something means, means to, to plea for it, to pledge something in order to get something new. And it makes me wonder this morning, what are we mortgaging out of desperation? What are we mortgaging out of desperation. See, what what happens is we begin to mortgage things in our lives because it feels like the only option in the moment. We we get caught in this desperation, right? And and it begins to determine our next steps. We mortgage our community, like our spiritual community, getting in a group, being filled with people who love Jesus. We mortgage that out of busyness because our time feels desperate. We, we mortgage our joy to the words of news outlets because the world feels desperate. We, we mortgage our peace to our bank accounts because times feel desperate. We, we mortgage our self-worth to social media because the mirror consistently yells desperation. We, we mortgage our purpose to comfort because hopelessness has creeped in and created this urgency of desperation. We mortgage things out of desperation, and every time, it's because we've taken our eyes off the mission, taken our eyes off the kingdom of God and put it on the world. We've taken our eyes off the hope of the cross and put them on our temporary happiness and satisfactions. And so we become desperate, because let's be real, the world is pretty desperate. But guess what? Our kingdom isn't. The world is desperate, but our king is secure. And so if our eyes would just stay focused here, there'd be a lot less things that we'd have to begin mortgaging Because Jesus has already paid the biggest price. I love one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 6, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, we don't need to mortgage our joy because God's already paid for us to have it. We don't need to mortgage our peace because God is the prince of peace. We don't need to mortgage our purpose because God has called us to a specific purpose every single one of us, we got to stop mortgaging things out of desperation and instead turn to Jesus and say, okay, help get my eyes back on the mission. Get my eyes back on the mission. They begin to mortgage things out of desperation. But it's in a result of a famine. This is the second thing I feel is really important for us this morning. So what we need to know is that in the midst of building a wall, a famine can come. In the midst of building the wall that God's called us to build, a famine can come. 
this is pretty, uh, like, this is pretty applicable for us today. Um, I think it applies for us pretty substantially over the last couple of years um, in the form of the pandemic, COVID. Uh, if, if you don't know what that is, you're under a rock, right? Um, but uh, back in April of 2020, uh, if you don't know, God called us to build a wall. As a church, he's called us to build this wall called Beyond. And what Beyond is, it's a two-year journey of increased generosity to multiply our kingdom impact. And that's the whole point. The purpose of building walls as a church is to multiply kingdom impact. And that was April of 2020. And do you know what else happened around April 2020? Isolation, (laughs) COVID, pandemic, famine. When you build walls, famine is possible. And we, we were faced with this moment of, oh, shoot, did we miss it? Did we mess up? Should we move it? Like, it would be easy. It would be more comfortable, like, for us to move it so we can fully focus on this, this famine, on this pandemic. We can move it and do it some other time. But we had this strong conviction that, no, 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 no. Yeah, we have to address the famine, but it can't become our focus. Right? We have to address the famine that's at stake, but it can't become our focus because God has already given us this focus. He's already given us this mission. He's already told us to go beyond. In church, when famine comes, yes, we need to address it. Hear me. We need to address it. We need to figure out how to be the church in the midst of it. We need to figure out how to step in where people have stepped out. We need to address it, but it can't become our focus. It can't become our focus. Do you know why? Because salvation should be our focus. Discipleship should be our focus. Baptism should be our focus. Multiplication should be our focus. Bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth should be our focus. And we have to keep our eyes on the mission. So many of us, man, we've allowed famine to become the focus of the mission that we're living by right now. We've allowed the pandemic to become the focus of, of the mission that we're living. Don't believe me? Check your Facebook feeds. How many pictures of baptism are you seeing right now? And how many stories of transformation from death to life are you reading about? When's the last time you posted about Jesus? Is it, is it, is it all about the kingdom? Mm-mm. What is it? Politics? Vaccine or no vaccine? Mask or no mask? Struggling working at home? Still feeling isolated? We're focusing on the famine. We've taken our eyes off of the mission. Because what we've done is we've become so far, we've gone so far past acknowledging the famine that we've allowed the famine to begin to consume us on both sides of the debate. On both sides of the debate, we've taken our eyes off of the mission. But Nehemiah knows that regardless of a famine, he has to keep his eyes on a mission and he has to get the people of God, the church, to keep their eyes focused on the mission that God's given instead of the famine. And we see this in the way that he approaches generosity. I love this. In verses 14 through 19. Check this out. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerus the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Real fast. Let me unpack that. That's saying, for 12 years, I didn't take what I could have taken. I gave it back to the church. Okay, that's what that means. The former governors who were before me laid heaven burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. So the other, other leaders, no, 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 they just took it for themselves. They, they built up their own treasure. It says, even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Why did he do this? 
to be recognized? Mm -mm. Because of fear of God. I also persevered in the work of this wall. Did he stop? Did he halt progress because of the famine? Nope. Persevered to the work on this wall. And we acquired no land. And all of my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, they were at my table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, at my expense for each day, was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. Not the, not the bad sheep and birds, the, the, the choice ones, the best ones, the best of what he had. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Hey, my church had a burden, and so I filled the gap, is what he's saying. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all I have done for this people. Can you imagine getting to heaven one day and saying that? Hey, remember for my good, oh my God, all I've done for your people, all I've done for my neighbors, all I've done for my coworkers, and all I've done to build your church. Remember me for that, oh God. See, one of our five prayers in this series is that we would be a church that focuses, that runs into sacrificial generosity. Why? Because Nehemiah demonstrates the power that comes when the church is unified around bringing a pe uh, being a people of sacrificial generosity. Nehemiah, he, I mean, he, as you just read, I mean, he lived his life through a sacrificial mindset. And what my fear is this morning is that many of us have got caught up in living our lives through a scarcity mindset. Not a sacrificial mindset, but a scarcity mindset. And in the gospel of, of Mark, I love this story. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture, Jesus teaches something and demonstrates something that happens that defines the difference between a sacrificial mindset and a scarcity mindset through the, through the person and the giving of this widow. Check this out. It's, it's amazing. Mark 12, 41 through 44. Jesus says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. So he's watching these people tithe to the church. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him because he didn't want them to miss this moment. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. A penny. For they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. See, sometimes what we can get trapped in is we equate more money to being better, more generous people. Right? Just because that we have more money to give than somebody else and we gave more money and we want to pat on the back because we're like, oh man, I gave more. Like, I was more generous. Well, actually, no, what Jesus is saying to do right here is to check your heart. Because what he's saying to do is, hey, hey you might have given more, but was it with the same approach? Was it with the same heartbeat? Was it with the same attitude? See, this widow, she understands the call of God to build the church. She understands that, hey, my comfort is, is worth laying down for a second in order to see the kingdom of God be built. And she comes and she gives everything that she had to live on in order to see the church grow. 
And other people probably gave like hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they're like, oh, well, that's budgeted out, right? That's, that's my giving budget. And then I got my food budget. And we got this vacation coming up. We can't tap into that. And, and you know, my kids have all these sports. Those are expensive. And so these are all my budget. But I can give this money, and it's a lot of money. But are you approaching it with the same heart as the widow? Like, gosh, I cannot imagine. I really can't. I can't imagine what our church would look like if all of us approached giving like this widow. If all of us said, ah, yeah, it might make me a little uncomfortable. Mm, I might have to move some budgets around. <sighs> like this is going to be tough. Ooh, we're going to have to figure out where to, where to fill some gaps. But man, do I believe that the kingdom work is worth it. Man, do I believe that the world needs hope. And man, do I know that the local church is the way to do it. Like, gosh, what if we could just be wrapped around that mindset See, Nehemiah, I mean, he lives in this sacrificial mindset. In the scripture, he gets, a, he gets a promotion. And what's he do? He keeps the title, and then he gives the money away. Right? Like, he keeps the title and says, no, no, I'm going to give these extra funds away. He gives away his choice livestock, the best of his possessions, the best of his things, in order to see the church and the mission move forward. Not just the random ones, the best. Why? Because the mission that God had given him was more important than his comfort. It was more important. He doesn't store up. He pours out. Because, in the mit, because his mind is so far beyond comfort. It's on others and it's on the kingdom. See, Nehemiah, he has a sacrificial mindset because his mind was set on the treasure of heaven. So I got to ask this morning, church, is our mind set on the treasure of heaven? Or are we storing up things that are going to be useless in eternity? Where are we putting our treasure See, I want to tell you guys a story that, man, just convicted me and challenged me and made me love Jesus more, something that happened this summer. And it is one of the greatest stories of sacrificial generosity that I've ever been a part of. This summer, uh, we, had our, we had our summer retreat called The Escape. Can I get a cheer for The Escape? Because it was awesome. Thank you. It was amazing. We took students down to Panama City Beach, Florida, and God moved in some really, really awesome ways. And, man, it's a grind getting those camps ready to go, right? And so the week, two weeks leading up, I'm like, gosh, trying to get all the logistics together, get all these things together. And we had these students who needed more scholarship money to go because COVID created more space where people needed funds to be able to go in this thing. And so I sent out a message to our small group leaders, which I don't normally do, but I did. And I was like, hey, I'm going to give a scholarship out of my money. Like, I want to see if there anybody would be willing to partner with me and send some send some students to camp. And I mean, over the next week, God moved in some really cool ways and people gave scholarships. I was like, gosh, I think we have what it takes to send these students who need some scholarships to camp. And one of these couples who gave scholarships gave five of them. Like, that's a lot of money. And I was like, gosh, like, how generous are you? You gave five scholarships. That's five students who went on the retreat and experienced Jesus maybe for the first time. That's five students who heard the gospel. That's five students who, might, who may have came to know Jesus in that weekend. Like that's five lives who could be changed because of your generosity. And I was like, gosh, like praise God. That is so generous. That is so amazing. And they gave that on a Saturday. And on a Monday, the next Monday, I get a call from this couple. And this couple was like, hey, I got to be honest, Sean, the last three days, we haven't been able to sleep. We feel like the Holy Spirit is just tugging on our heart and saying, hey, you gave what you could, but I need you to give more because there's kingdom work that's never been done that needs to be done. 
And they, they, look, they, they talk to me, and they're explaining that there's conviction for Jesus to, to move at the escape. And they ask me the question, hey, how many could you use? First of all, as a student pastor, I've never been asked that question. So not used to being asked how much money can I have. So I was like, uh, logistically, um, let's see, I got a week. I can go yell at some schools and try to get some people, let's say 20. You know 20? I don't know. That's bold. That feels like a lot, but 20. And, and they're like, yeah, Sean, we just have a different number in mind that we really feel like the Lord's convicted us on. And I was like, all right, cool. So like 10, 11, 9, 8, what is it? And they're like, hey, no, no, no. We feel like, we really feel like God specifically said to us that there are 50 students who have not signed up for the retreat that need to sign up and they won't be able to get there unless they have the funds to. So we want to donate 50 more scholarships. Guys, that's sacrificial generosity. Saying, hey, five would have been good, but that would have been a scarcity mindset. Because five's comfortable. Five was my budget. Five's like, okay, cool, we can do that. 50? No, 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 that's uncomfortable. We got to move some numbers around. We got to do some different things. And can I tell you that the direct kingdom impact because of their sacrificial generosity was insane? In a week, we saw 53 more students sign up. And at the escape, we saw 31 students give their life to Jesus and 50 who came who had never been to wake before, meaning that people were unchurched, came and heard the gospel and were saved because these people said, no, 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 not scarcity, sacrificial. That's how good it was. I love that story because it's like, gosh, it's convicting to me of, oh my gosh, like I may never, listen, they're not small group leaders. They, they don't, they're moving. They won't even be going to our church anymore. And they may never see the kingdom, the impact that comes from the dollars they give, but the faith that they had to say, hey, this money is worth growing the kingdom and I know it will, even if I don't see it until I get to heaven. What if we walked in that approach? I asked myself all summer, gosh, how can I begin to walk in that approach in ways that I haven't before? And Nehemiah, I mean, he walked in that approach. Nehemiah went without so that others could have. He reimagined his time and he rearranged his budget for the sake of the mission of God. And let me ask you, when, when was the last time that you went without so that somebody else could have? When was the last time that you began to rearrange your schedule because of someone? When was the last time you said, okay, I'm going to change up my budgets in order to, to see the kingdom grow, in order to see people come to know Jesus? So we've got to put our money as a church and our resources as a church where our mouth is because we've got to show, man, this is, this is our faith. This is what we stand on. This is our hope. This is the hope of the world, the light set on a, on a hill that the city, that the world of darkness may see. We gotta give sacrificially. It's gonna require us to get uncomfortable. It's gonna require us to give in an unbelievably selfless way. But what we have to do is we have to lay our comfort at the cross, our finances at the cross, our time at the cross, and say, okay, God, do with it what you need. You gave it to me, now do with it what you need. See, what you need to know is sacrificial generosity, it's rooted in next level humility. Sacrificial generosity, I mean, it's rooted in next level humility. And Nehemiah, he lived in humility, but you know who exemplifies humility? Jesus, our Savior, the King of the universe. And because of his unity is the reason that we're able to have life. So what you need to know is that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. 
Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he gave his money, he gave his time, he gave the best of his resources, and that's amazing. But Jesus, in humility, in unreal humility, comes and he gives his life. Philippians 2, 3 through 8, I love this. This is a call for us because of what he's done. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Hey, that's for us. There should be nothing that we're doing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but instead count others more significant than us. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, not just for our interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, it says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what he did. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Humility led to obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus went to the cross and died a death he didn't deserve so that we could be here with a mission and a life that we don't deserve to have. He went and he died a death he didn't deserve so that we can say, okay, God, use me because I don't even deserve to have this life. But I do because you're good and you're faithful and you laid it all out for me. Because even though we have the famine of sin, Jesus didn't allow it to consume him and to consume the world, but he addressed it. He addressed it, but it didn't become his focus because the church, his people were his focus. And when his prayer, the reason he did this is for the church to be unified. For there to be unity in the mission that he's given us. And he took the cross so that the kingdom of heaven could come to earth. Church, now it's our turn. It's our turn. It's our turn to get get uncomfortable. It's our turn to fight for unity. It's our turn to build this church brick by brick brick. It's our turn turn to step in humility into the obedience of the calling that God has put on our lives to give sacrificially to see the kingdom of heaven come to earth. It's our turn. Not just one of us. That's not God's call. All of us together as his people are tasked to build a wall that he's called us to build. We can't get distracted can't get distracted by the famine. We can address it, but we have to lean in in expectancy, keep our eyes on the focus, give sacrificially, and believe that the kingdom of God will come to earth as it is in heaven. It's time to go beyond now. It's time to go beyond here. And it's time to go beyond us. That is our mission. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. Lord, I'm so grateful for you. Lord, I'm grateful that in humility, you did take the cross in humility, but you came as in the form of a servant, in the likeness of man. You emptied yourself out so that we could have life. Lord, thank you for stepping in humility and obedience to the point of death on a cross so that we, so that I could have a life in you, experience real joy, real peace, and real purpose. And maybe there's some of you in the room today You've never experienced that joy, that life, that peace that's come 
And Jesus, you've been mortgaging things away in your life, trying to search for other things to fill you that the world has to offer, and you keep coming up empty. And can I tell you that there is a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he's running after you, and he wants your life so that he can give you real life. If that's, you've never done that today, and you want to take the step to put your life in Jesus for the first time today, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, I love you. I believe in you. Lord, thank you for emptying yourself out and dying a death you didn't deserve so that I can have a life that I don't deserve. Jesus, I'm, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the grave so that I could have life. And Lord, I, I vow to step into that life today and for the rest of my days. If that's you, I'm going to ask you on the count of three to be bold and to, to raise your hand in celebration that you've given your life to Jesus. One, two, three. Yeah, praise Jesus. Yeah, God, I'm so grateful for you. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we would live sacrificially. Lord, I pray that you would get rid of scarcity mindsets in this church and you would replace them with sacrificial ones. Lord, yes, with our money, but not just with our money, but with our time and with our efforts and with our resources and with our love and with our prayer and with our reading of the Bible. Lord, that you would, you would just step in and do a new thing. Lord, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful that you've given us a mission and the gates of hell cannot prevail or stand against it. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Y'all can stand. Let's continue to worship together this morning.